The People's Constitution, the path to empowerment of Australians in a 21st century democracy by Bronwyn Kelly. Read by Bronwyn Kelly. Chapter 7, Part 7. Enshrining a National People's Voice in a People's Constitution. The question of how Australians might safely enshrine a national people's voice in their constitution revolves essentially around the question of how relationships of trust may be established between the people and the parliaments they elect. In the transition from the current constitution, which gives exclusive supremacy to the parliament as the maker of laws, with or without guidance from the people, to a new constitution which locates sovereignty in the expressed will of the people, the practical capacity for development of terms of trust between the parliament and the people will be essential. There is probably no other way to encourage the parliament to grant an appropriate share of power to the people in their own constitution. Indeed, it is highly unlikely that any set of elected parliamentarians will consider it safe to create a role for the people in the constitution at all, unless and until they can be confident that satisfactory terms of trust have been agreed which accord the parliament a share of power sufficient to ensure the stability of the system of representative government, or to put it perhaps more accurately, the stability of their positions of power within that system of governance. Australian parliaments, especially their Conservative members, have always jealously guarded parliamentary supremacy. But to date, this has come at the expense of our human rights. As I noted in Chapter 6, there has been a general insistence that parliamentarians must be free to determine laws as they see fit and must be unobstructed in that process by any High Court judgment that, under the guise of constitutional interpretation, may seek to amend the powers of the Parliament conferred on it by the Constitution. In general terms, this is an assertion by those elected to Parliament that they shall not be constrained by any unelected persons, such as the people or a few High Court judges, and shall only be restrained by the strict letter of the Constitution itself. This seems reasonable on the surface, but it is actually an assertion that parliaments or governments may move as close to exercise of arbitrary power as the Constitution allows them to. In that regard, Australia's Constitution should suit the parliamentary supremacists just fine because it simply says what each legislative body empowered under it may make laws for, but places no limits on that power. For instance, it places no limits on the extent to which human rights may not be abused in lawmaking, or the extent to which someone may be discriminated against on the grounds of race, or even the extent to which the national interest may not be undermined. The modern state, as it is manifest in Australia's constitution, conflates the power to determine the national interest and to make laws for it into one body. This is not to say that governments often define the national interest, much less express the national will. On the contrary, they either refrain wherever possible from defining the national interest or confine their articulation of it to ad hoc pronouncements of narrowly focused reactive policies. 
but nor do they facilitate public opportunities for expression of the national interest or will. In that sense, the Australian modern state, enabled by our constitution, is as far from democracy as any other system of governance that we are accustomed to characterising as autocratic. This too suits the powerful just fine. Accustomed as they are to near unlimited power, it might therefore be expected that elected members of future parliaments will continue to work assiduously to ensure that the Constitution should include no terms which might enable the High Court to diminish that supremacy in power by determining its lawful limits or its obligations to the people. In particular, they will be likely to argue that it should include no terms like a statement of Australian values and an agreement on human rights and obligations which might, as justiciable elements of the Constitution, have the potential to bind a parliament and a government in ways that vested interests do not wish them to be bound. Contemplating that, it is apparent that there is a need to break the nexus between the power to express the national interest and the power to make laws in the national interest. In a people's constitution, these two powers would be separated so that the national interest should be determined by the people, but the parliament would still be free to exercise judgment whenever it is making laws, and the executive government would be free to do the same in determining policy. In principle, we would hope that the lawmaking and policy development powers would be exercised consistent with the national interest as expressed by the people, and would be based on evidence and independent advice as to the best course of action. This advice need not exclude the advice of vested interest groups, but if we have devised a system by which we might articulate the overall national interest and articulate it as the lively, dynamic thing that it is, something constantly evolving as world circumstances and prospect change, in other words, something that is future-focused, then we can contextualise sectional interests in relation to the national interest and make it easier for lawmakers and policy setters to make far better, more balanced judgments. In particular, we can ensure that parliaments and governments can take the interests of future generations into account. This is something they cannot do now because they have no guidance about the will of the people for their future. So as I said, enshrinement of the power of the people to express the national interest comes back to the need to develop terms of trust between the people and the parliaments they elect. These terms must be comprehensible to parliaments and therefore the people must be enabled to express the terms on which they are willing to share power in a coherent form. That is step number one towards a true democracy. I will discuss this further in Chapter 10, but at this point it is necessary to at least scope the form those terms might take and to provide some indication of their potential to bind or at least bend parliaments and governments to an expressed will of the people. It is necessary to resolve this because any change to the constitution that introduces a new level of specificity to the limits of power and the obligations of governments will have a major impact on the nature of the oath that a person elected to federal parliament will be required to faithfully swear. At the moment, 
Because there is no specificity at all as to the purposes of power in the Constitution, elected members can take the oath as lightly as they please. Indeed, it binds them to nothing but a dead queen and her foreign heirs and successors. But if we introduce terms of trust, if we say that in the best judgment of the people, this is what power is legitimately for, then those who swear allegiance will, from that moment, need to think more deeply about what they may rightly do with power. At the same time, though, the people themselves will need to think reasonably about the limitations and obligations they might impose on the elected. It is likely that some parts of the terms of trust should be accepted as constants through time because they're less likely to change quickly and indeed constitute the fundamentals that hold our society together. Statements of national values and agreements on human rights would be likely to fall into that category because they describe a moral character for the nation and the public interest overall. As such, they should not be problematic if they are justiciable. They should present no problem to any elected member when swearing allegiance, and if they do, we should be concerned as to whether we have elected a person whose moral commitments match those of the nation. But in contrast to values and rights, a national people's voice is very unlikely to be constant through time, nor would there be any utility in attempting to make time or for that matter, our aspirations, stand still. And indeed, if the national voice is to be expressed in the form of a long-term integrated plan for making our preferred future a reality, rather than as a moral precept or a minimum right, then it could be problematic both for those who must swear allegiance to the Constitution and for those courts that must issue legal judgments about whether a government or parliament has failed to comply with it. The logical solution to this issue is that rather than make a national people's voice, as expressed in a dynamic long-term plan, justiciable, in other words, rather than try to bind a government to a people's voice about what they want for their future and the strategies for its realisation, it would be better to allow both the people and the parliament some latitude in their respective roles to exercise their best judgment consistent with the national interest. The national interest itself can only be defined by the people. Its minimum may be expressed as values and human rights. In other words, values and human rights must be enshrined in the Constitution as the bottom line of the people's tolerance of their consenting to be governed. Values and human rights provide the list of the powers of Australians that may not be abused by those they elect. And a key right among all those human rights is the right of the people to express their sovereign will. This is a right that is consonant with the right to self-determination, but it has a collective dimension. It might be said that the sovereign will is the collective expression of a self-determining nation of equals. This right to express a sovereign will, to have a national people's voice, must be acknowledged in the Constitution if we are to ensure that our system of merely representative government matures into and actually functions as a system of responsible government instead of an unaccountable autocracy. At the moment, 
Australia's system of representative governance cannot function responsibly because there is nothing in the Constitution which states what the elected are to be responsible to. Ministers are responsible for their portfolios, but not responsible to the people. In other words, they are not accountable to any will other than their own temporal appetites. And as legislators, they can change the rules to suit such appetites whenever they can gather the numbers. It might be said that they are held accountable at the ballot box, but if so, it is only to a very light extent. In fact, as far as their accountability to future generations goes, the ballot box provides none. In effect, this means we must make a distinction between the national people's voice and the right of the people to express it. It is the right to express the national voice that must be enshrined in the Constitution rather than any particular statement of aspirations for the future that may arise from the process of expression of that voice. The extent to which any such statements as they arise may be binding on a parliament or a government is a matter for each parliament and government. But once the statements have been made, the elected would be well advised to remember that the ballot box is just around the corner and there is an ultimate point of accountability for their judgments. If in this proposed arrangement we take it that, one, a statement of Australian values, two, a national agreement on human rights and obligations, and three, a people's right to expression of a national voice, will all be justiciable, but that any statements, such as a long-term integrated national plan, will not be justiciable, but will function as guidance to governments and as a means of measuring how well a parliament or government behaved in relation to the people's will, then we may well have the makings of a system for setting terms of trust which do not unreasonably bind or hobble either the parliament or the people. In short, we may have found a way to avoid the trap of replacing one overweening power arrangement with another. We may have found a way to build our trust in governments and their trust in us sufficient to install a power for people in the constitution that will not undermine the system of representative government. Instead, it should enhance the capacity for responsible behaviour in that system. If the people have the power to express their sovereign will and the parliament retains the power to choose how it may observe that will, consistent with the interests of the nation and future generations, we will finally have installed a system by which government can be and can be seen to be responsible to the people. We will have a system where the parliament and the government retain the power to decide how they shall work together to make the people's sovereign will for their future a reality. The powers of parliamentarians will be the same as they are now, but the potential for its abuse of certain powers will be limited due to the transparency of the terms of trust on values and rights. The potential for abuse of the national voice will also be curtailed, in the sense that if a choice is exercised to depart from the people's will, it will be clear that their preferences for the future have not been respected. To the extent that a government or parliament can explain the reasons for its departures and show how the departures still positively contribute to the national project, then a government and parliament may be deemed to be responsible. 
to the extent that they cannot adequately explain those deviations, they should expect to pay the price at the ballot box. This is the arrangement that should result if we combine the strengths of a representative system of democracy with a participatory system of democracy. It should be noted that this suggested form for the terms of trust, combining values, rights and voice, happens to line up well with proposals for an Indigenous voice in the Constitution. That too is an amendment that would support a better relationship between people and the parliaments, but without placing unreasonable constraints on the ability of elected members to freely exercise their best judgment. In the main, the form that an Indigenous voice might take as an institution is yet to be detailed, but it would be reasonable to assume that the independence of the Indigenous voice would be a primary principle in its formation as an institution. We might imagine, therefore, that the Indigenous voice would operate in parallel to a national people's voice. The potential is there, if both are enshrined, to achieve a coexistence of sovereignties. However, the form of Indigenous voice that has been contemplated under the Indigenous voice co-design process released in 2021 is not, shall we say, as capacious as the form of the National People's Voice that I have described. The National People's Voice, at least as I have envisaged it, would operate as an independent institution that has been constitutionally enabled to organise people to work together in a well-formed process to build a long-term integrated plan. Whereas we might expect that an Indigenous voice at the national level may be somewhat more of a reactive than a proactive policy body. The proposed wording of constitutional amendments put forward for consultation by the newly elected Labor government in 2022 suggests that a planning function for the national Indigenous voice was not front and centre in the minds of the government. In suggesting a constitutional amendment that says, quote, there shall be a body to be called the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice, and that this voice may make representations to Parliament and the Executive Government on matters relating to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples, unquote. It wasn't readily apparent that a national Indigenous voice would be supported to build long-term plans. Rather, the inference was that the voice would react to government proposals simply on matters that affect Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. However, this reactive model for an Indigenous voice has arisen through consultation that has been conducted in the context of a structure for our democracy that assumes no role for the people and total parliamentary supremacy on both the determination of the sovereign will and the power to make laws for it. In other words, it was a model conceived in a political framework that did not consider the opportunities offered by a people's constitution. Chief among those opportunities is co-sovereignty. This suggests that it might be worthwhile in the final design of the Indigenous voice if room is left within it for Aborigines and Torres Strait Islanders to develop their own long-term integrated planning capacity, learning from the experience of the integrated planning and reporting reforms discussed above. If that could be achieved, we would have two national voices enabled in the Constitution that would be of equal capacity. 
But regardless of whether Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples choose to establish an integrated planning capacity in their national voice, Australians at large should not risk modelling their own national people's voice on the Indigenous voice as it seems to have been designed, that is, as a reactive, non-binding instrument instead of a proactive, non-binding planning instrument. A national people's voice could not be successful if it were merely reactive, because that would mean that we were simply reverting to a system where the government determines our will, sets the agenda, and confines it to the short-term items that suit its political purposes. There would be little to be gained if that were all we attempted. For a truly visionary voice, we need more. We need a well-resourced, professional, independent centre of excellence in community engagement, social research and integrated planning. We should also expect that the level of expertise required for facilitation of such a wide-ranging process would be a major undertaking. It would require, one, significant centralisation of research materials and data that Australians will need if they are to participate efficiently in the planning process, and two, staff with facilitation skills which will maximise the possibility of open access and involvement by any Australian who may wish to contribute. It will be no easy task to establish skills in community engagement which can make everyone feel welcome to participate should they so desire. But the prospect of what could be achieved would be very attractive for both the public and the facilitators. There would be no shortage of people wanting to become involved, but a good place to start would be to introduce skills training for year 10, 11 and 12 students in policy development for national issues. At the same time, it would be advisable to drop the voting age to 16. This would enable young people to become accustomed to more active involvement in their democracy. Bearing in mind that the simple objective in enshrining a right to a national people's voice in the Constitution is to establish an open public square for collaborative development of an integrated long-term plan for our society, environment, economy and democracy, so that we can track towards a future of well-being and security for all, the most appropriate institutional arrangement for such a voice is likely to be a well-resourced but entirely independent commission for community engagement in national integrated planning. In some ways, this commission might resemble the National Indigenous Voice, at least insofar as, like the Indigenous Voice, it would not be able to bind governments and instead would rely on building relationships of mutual respect between the Australian people and their parliaments, but recognising always that the expression of the sovereign will is primarily the people's right, not the parliament's. An independent commission built on this model should ideally have no power to override either the parliament or the Indigenous voice. In fact, no party in this new sort of body politic should be given power to interfere with another in their rightful exercise of power. They simply need to be given a means to increase and maintain their trust in each other. Rather than a system where one part of the body politic such as a parliament, is considered the superior or paramount power, it would be more useful to conceptualise a body politic where power is shared more widely and its separate components are rebalanced more sensibly between the parliament, the executive government, the states, the judiciary, 
First Nations and the Australian people. This sort of rebalanced system of power relations has the capacity to redefine the responsibilities of all parties to Australia's democracy. If those new responsibilities are defined well, they should help us limit the potential for abuses of power, but also maximise the benefits of new, more equal power relationships. At a time when the nation is being called on to secure its future via a model that supports a coexistence of sovereignties, this wider spread of power presents a particularly adroit option, one that offers the possibility not just of a voice for all, but a coexistence of diverse voices. It also offers a form in which every Australian, Indigenous and non-Indigenous alike, can maximise their chances of exercising rights of self-determination. But perhaps most importantly, it offers Australians an enormous increase in their capacity to speed up their transition to a sustainable future and do so without increasing political and economic inequality. The vast majority of Australians know that we have lost a decade, perhaps two, that we shouldn't have lost in our progress towards a society, environment and economy that offers a sustainable, affordable future in the age of climate change. But although we have started late, we can still pick up a lot of speed if we integrate our strategies. For those who wish to pick up the necessary speed, the following starting draft of a national people's voice is offered as a contribution to deliberations. Chapter 7, Part 8 Starting Draft of an enshrined constitutional process for expression of the national people's voice. Heading Australian People's Constitution, the National People's Voice, Draft for Use in Community Engagement. As a source of sovereignty, the people of Australia shall be enabled to exercise their right to express their sovereign will for the future of their society, environment, economy and democracy. Expression of this sovereign will for the future shall take the form of a collaboratively assembled and regularly monitored and reviewed integrated plan for the well-being and security of all Australians over the longer term, up to 30 years. The process of expression of the sovereign will for the future and any emergent statements and plans from that process shall be known as the National People's Voice. For purposes of assisting the people in orderly composition of their national voice, there shall be an independent commission for national engagement and integrated planning. The commission shall have a charter of independence from the parliament and executive government, shall be accountable by annual reports to the people of Australia, and shall be charged as a minimum with responsibility to the people of Australia for development and maintenance of fully open forums and accessible processes by which all Australians may be enabled to 1. Accurately assess the state of their health, well-being and security as a nation. 2. Participate at will in planning processes to articulate a vision for their preferred future and their preferred safe paths to that future. And 3 receive independent reports on the progress of the nation towards or away from that future. The Commission shall be established and maintained 
with sufficient funding and resources to support Australians in the orderly composition, review and revision of their national voice, including as a minimum, one, all research resources necessary to ensure that the national people's voice can be formulated and monitored on the basis of credible and comprehensive data and information on all aspects of the performance of the Australian society, environment, economy and democracy. And two, all communications and facilitation resources necessary to enable best practice in inclusive community engagement and active citizen participation in building a cohesive nation. The Commission shall also be entitled to access and rely on the financial and economic planning capacities of the Treasury and the Parliamentary Budget Office for any information necessary to conduct dialogues with Australians on options for sustainably financing their preferred future. Statements and plans arising from the operation of the National People's Voice shall be understood to be non-binding on the Executive Government and shall not constrain the Parliament in its power to make laws in accordance with this Constitution, but shall constitute guidance to the Parliament as to the people's sovereign will for the future, and shall therefore be accorded the status of a primary consideration in all parliamentary deliberations. In making laws, including laws pertaining to budgets and appropriations, and in reviewing the appropriateness of administrative decisions on an adherence to policy, executive governments shall accordingly be obligated to prepare and parliaments shall be required to consider comprehensive statements of compatibility with the National People's Voice and to provide reasons for any incompatibility with its expression of the people's sovereign will. Chapter 7, Part 9 Maximising the Effectiveness of a New Balance of Power in Democracy If Australians seek to enhance the capacity of their democracy by the means I have suggested thus far, they will be likely to step into an era where democracy functions far more effectively than it has in the past to service the public good and protect the public interest. The three constitutional amendments I have suggested enabling Australians to, one, build a statement of their values as a society, two, enshrine human rights and obligations in law along with a process for conferring and protecting those rights, and three, to enshrine a system or process which will lift the voice of Australians to a level of coherence at which their will can be understood and actively fulfilled by the elected, all combine significantly to increase the chances that Australians of the future will have an acceptable degree of well-being and security. However, the benefit we might obtain from injecting Australians into the centre of their democracy by these mechanisms will be diminished if certain other features of the Constitution remain unamended. For example, if the racist clauses in the Constitution are retained, they will have the capacity to allow a government to undermine human rights. And if the Governor-General retains more power than the King, as is the case at present, that would obviously be wholly incompatible with an arrangement which vests sovereignty in the people. We are also likely to lose benefits if no action is taken to deal with some other matters on which the Constitution is silent. 
For instance, the Constitution currently contains no provisions to prevent corruption of election processes, particularly as it places no restrictions on the extent to which election campaigns may be funded and political donations may be made. It leaves the way open for voter suppression and capture of election processes by corporate powers. And notably, the current constitution is silent on a key player in the arena of power, the Prime Minister, and his or her capacity to override the will of all others in relation to war. By virtue of its silence on this matter, the constitution enables a tyranny on the thing that matters most to Australians, their safety from immoral war and nuclear destruction. As I mentioned in Chapter 3, there is a myriad of reforms that are necessary to bring Australia's constitution into the 21st century. But if the primary objective here is to establish the Australian people as the source of the sovereign will and to distribute power so that for the first time in our country's history, we the people actually have some, then the focus needs to be on amendments that are necessary to protect the gains we will make for our democracy and the power of the people within it by the three main changes I have suggested above. Amendments which are extraneous to that purpose, such as those which alter the distribution of power between the states or between different levels of government or those which might define the rules on free trade, can be dealt with at a later time. The priority here should be to develop a program of amendments to ensure that we can increase the clarity of the Constitution about how power is distributed fairly and properly between the entities empowered by it. In the following chapter, I will make some suggestions as to the more pressing items in that program. <laughs>